2: And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's How Do We Fix It with Richard and Jim.
3: Planning for the future and adapting to change. Mark Earls. So businesses spend huge amounts of money on forecasting the future. There's even something called predictive analytics. Are they any good at it? Nope. <laughs> to be honest. Next.
1: So we have to recognize the future is multiple. And we have to prepare for multiple futures. You can't really imagine what it's going to be like should a bad thing happen. We over- Estimate how bad we might feel if we lose something and underestimate how we might feel if something good happens to us.
3: Our show is about fixes.
2: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it?
3: So, Jim, there have been moments in my life when I knew the world was going to change, because I was a reporter, and they sent me on big stories, and one of them was the Berlin Wall. I was in Berlin right after the wall came down, and I knew that was a huge moment in time. Same thing on the morning of 9-11 when I was reporting from the streets of lower Manhattan. But I had no idea how the world was going to change, just that
0: something big had happened. And what's so amazing is something that looks totally obvious after the fact— is impossible for people to see before the fact. I mean, 9-11 even is an example of that, that, you know, they never connected the dots. Well, it wasn't so obvious beforehand as it looked afterwards. So why are we so bad at predicting stuff? Mark Earls is joining
3: us for a second time on How Do We Fix It? uh, This time in our living room of our apartment, Jim actually biked here. His bike is right next to the table. Checking out New York's (laughs) transportation
0: (laughs) cyclist infrastructure.
3: And Mark is a writer and consultant on marketing, communications, and behavioral change. Uh, You're also the author of Copy, 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 uh, Heard, How to Change Mass Behavior by Harnessing Our True Nature,
0: and I'll have what she's having. Mark, welcome. Hello. So, Mark, let's start with this thought. That we are much worse at picking winners than we'd like to admit. Why is that? I think we are bad at picking winners for the simple
1: reason that most things aren't very obvious in most of the horse races we look at. There's very rarely a favorite that's very clearly superior. So we're very bad at predicting the future. And one of the reasons is that we value what we've got about twice as much in monetary terms in the experiments as... The same stuff if we if we had to go and make an effort to, to gain it again. What do you mean by that? Explain that. My old business and, and insights mentor is uh, Professor Andrew Ehrenberg. He used to call this the girlfriend syndrome, by which he meant, I've got to think my girlfriend is attractive because she is my girlfriend. So, you know, you value stuff you've got as opposed to stuff you might gain.
0: And you're much more averse to risking losing something than you're willing to take a small risk of gain ex- a That's lot more.
1: precisely
3: it. Precisely it. Is is that why I get so upset when I have a
1: small loss on the stock market, but when I have a gain, it's like, well, oh, okay. I think it's. I think that's one of the things. Losing things is terribly painful. One of our biggest shorthands is loss aversion, and we do anything we can do to avoid loss.
3: So businesses spend huge amounts of money on forecasting the future. There's even something called predictive
1: analytics.
3: Are they any good at
1: it? No. Nope. <laughs> to be honest Sex. no they're not they're not and there are two or three reasons So one of which is the human stuff we just talked about which is basically we find it very hard to imagine what the future might be like because we're vested in today's business as people it's much the same you know you can't really imagine what it's going to be like should a bad thing happen we overestimate how bad we might feel if we lose something and underestimate how we might feel if something good happens to us. You know, Jeff Goldblum says in The Big Chill, the movie, that you two guys are probably old enough to remember. Uh, he <laughs> I've, says, seen <laughs> I've seen him several times. Uh, uh, he says, uh, don't not post-rationalization. It's more important than sex. <laughs> when did you last go for a whole week without a really juicy post-rationalization of your own behavior? I think, you know, we do stuff and then we make sense of it later.
0: It's, you know, there's something similar in politics. I, I saw a report the other day that... People think that they have a set of policy uh, ideas and they pick the candidate who reflects it. Really, they pick the candidate they like and then they, they, they rationalize the policies that that person advocates. And you can kind of see this with all the, the Trump support. He's changed his mind about almost everything. No, The hardcore fans, they don't care because they just like him. Mm,
1: absolutely. And it's how it makes you feel rather than the thing itself. One of the big tricks, I think, in being better in predicting the future is to take a step into the future rather than just consider intellectually what it might be like.
3: Yeah. Even among the experts, uh, Philip Tetlock of the University of Pennsylvania, who did this 20-year study of political predictions involving more than 250, I think it was 280 experts, and found that their rate of accuracy when it came to forecasts, and these are supposed experts, was, was little better than... Complete chance. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's hardly surprising, is it? If any of us have have, um, taken consistent advice from the same financial or investment expert (laughs) over the years, you know that sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't.
3: So, what should we do with that? Um, I mean, should we just dismiss experts? Because that doesn't. No, that's something that's very, very
1: popular with certain politicians in the UK right now, and I hear it is here. So expertise is a good thing, but I think we need to think about predicting the future differently. So we need first thing I think is to think about being looking to be generally right rather than specifically right. The second thing is to say, so what am I going to do? And getting people to do something with that scenario in mind actually engages them much more with that potential future than anything else so it's more valuable to get people to if you like plan for for a scenario that doesn't happen than it is to get Getting get them to predict precisely how the future is going to be.
3: I'm very interested in this, this general thing, though. We had Juliet Kayyem on our show talking about terrorism, and she's the former, I think, Assistant Secretary at the Department of Homeland Security. And she walked away from that thinking that it was wrong to tell people that we'll never have acts of terrorism or plan for zero acts. And I think, It speaks to what you're saying about generally, that you plan for fewer terrorist acts and you plan to try and do your best to prevent terrorism rather than promising a kind of all or nothing scenario.
1: I think that's absolutely right. And so it is in in our lives. You know, we, many of us think, oh, well, and one day I'll have this dream home and this dream life and I'll be doing this. It's not good to be too specific about it Mm -hmm. because you almost certainly won't get that But if you go, it's in this direction, then that seems to me to be a much more helpful and healthy way of going about planning your own personal future. And um, one of the things that that I think we get wrong in thinking about the future is that we think about it as the inevitable result of a singular past. So it's like a straight line from the past that's happened through the present into the future. And our job is like an artillery officer to do the trigonometry to work at exactly where the future is going to be mm-hmm. so that we can direct the guns on that place. And I'm not sure that that's terribly helpful because it's almost certainly not going to be there. It's going to be there and there and there and there. It's got a number of different places.
3: So you're a marketing guy. Yeah. And you advise brands on how to adapt to human behavior. Mm-hmm. So what do you tell them? When they're trying, for instance, to defend their turf or react to changes in the marketplace.
1: So I think the first thing is not to react to changes in the marketplace, but to anticipate them.
3: So you have to assume disruption because there's so many cases where businesses are disrupted quickly. I mean, in one right now, I just read the last couple of days, and I, I'm a, you'll find this interesting because we <laughs> both travel back and forth between the UK and, and US. There are now a whole bunch of new, smaller airlines coming online, charging less money for transatlantic flights for passengers, and that's bringing down the price of... Uh, airline tickets for a lot of travelers good thing for consumers oh, totally boy is that tough if you're american airlines mm. or british airways
1: no totally so totally. what do you say to american airlines and british airways and why didn't you see this coming yeah okay. my advice to businesses assume that you won't see it coming so work harder ahead of time
0: what are some companies that have done a good job of that
1: so i think spotify is a great one so you know there's this is been this is the online the music online music yeah. music streaming business and uh, daniel ek who started it was super smart Um, really nice, really nice, quiet, modest man. Uh, Another Swede. Another Swede, yeah, Yeah. Scandinavians. Um, What he did was he worked out that the key thing was not to launch in the US first. It's the biggest market. So wait, how
0: did Spotify do it exactly?
1: I think they did a couple of things that were really smart. The first of which is they uh, spent some time early on doing deals with the record labels before those deals mattered to the record labels.
0: Before Spotify was big, yeah.
1: The second thing is that they made their business work in small markets and were able to experience what it was like to have competition and respond to that and get,
0: get their product really, bu- really yeah. great
1: and get their organization really good so they learned how to respond to stuff that happened.
0: That's great.
3: And, it, and, in, and in case you're listening to this and don't really know the Spotify model, what's dramatically different about it is that instead of buying a CD, Uh, or uh, a piece of music as you might do in the iTunes store, or on the other hand, listening to something on Pandora that's similar to what you like, this enables you to, in a sense, rent the music and, and have it on your player for as long as you pay the subscription fee. There's a great example in one of your books about the record industry. Yeah, and this British group called Arctic Monkeys Mm -hmm. that went right around the record companies back in the old days. And maybe our younger listeners don't even know this. This is in the days when people
1: paid for music. Yeah,
3: paid for LPs. Uh, And the the record industry was the gatekeeper and controlled who uh, we got to listen to Mm -hmm. by signing artists for record deals. And Arctic Monkeys challenged that whole structure.
1: That's right. Well, they came from, they had built a very local following. Before they'd been signed by a label, they did a gig in central London in one of the major venues there. And everybody knew all the words. How can that be? And sure part of it was the internet allowed the fans to listen to stuff. But but also it's because they learned the importance of of getting people used to something before they have to buy it. And they gave stuff away. They gave stuff away. Try this.
0: Try this. Try this.
1: Try this. Try this.
0: Try this. And as someone who's been in businesses that have made that attempt to leap into a new world that wasn't their original business, specifically paper magazines. Magazines had websites forever, but when the iPad came out, my magazine was one of the pioneers in trying to come up with a unique iPad version of the magazine, and it was really fun. It was an incredibly creative exercise, and the product was really cool, but what we discovered was there was nobody in our business who was as customer-focused as You know, the people running Angry Birds. You know, when there was a product problem and people were leaving complaints, it was like, oh, yeah, we'll get to this on Monday or Tuesday. It's like, no, 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 no. They've got a problem tonight, and by tomorrow morning, they're going to have left a long, angry rant on our comments page in the iTunes store. So you can't let that stuff slide. No, these weren't bad people, but they just weren't used to having to respond to customers in real time.
1: Uh, I think that's one of the big learnings is you can't have that take a ticket and wait in line.
0: Mm Mm-hmm
2: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: To fix it.
0: So <laughs> how about some, some predictions? I mean, yeah, prediction's yeah, hard, <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, your business is helping companies um, figure out where they might be missing opportunities, what are the big changes you see coming?
1: There's a great example in, uh, in my book, Copy, 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 of what happened when Avis and Hertz went to China. They've been brilliant at developing this car rental model mm-hmm. and getting better and better at it. And, and they go to China, and uh, China's a big place. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people now in China, very well off, who want to have a car rental. But what they don't want, actually, is to drive the thing. <laughs> Why would you want that? If you've driven in a Chinese first or second tier city, it's just solid, smog ridden and gridlock traffic. You want someone to drive you. So they've done car rental with a driver. How do you think, are you seeing, this is back to Jim's question about predicting, are you seeing
3: changes that you think are on the horizon that are likely to uh, to take hold? And do
1: yeah, I know there are some things which are, which are bubbling under. There's a really interesting conversation going on in the marketing world right now about... What happens when, uh, when you have to do more than make a product, when you make a service? And we're seeing early signs here. So Unilever bought Dollar Shave Club, which is a different kind of business to the one that they're in. It's a service business.
0: So this is the one where they, they deliver you shaving products every month?
1: That's right. So they make products and they deliver them to you.
0: Where they deliver you products They deliver month. you products mm-hmm. every
1: month. And it's a great deal financially. And the product's great. The service is really clean and neat. Um, how does that play back into a business like Unilever, which has got factories and distribution systems which are about products? As opposed to servicing servicing. individual consumers. Absolutely, which is a whole different kettle of fish and using data from the individual relationships. Unilever don't have that. And it's not that Unilever won't learn it, but it's an interesting tension now. It's a new world that's emerging
0: where it's product plus rather than just products.
1: So they'll have to change their whole corporate culture to deal with this.
0: What else is out there looming threats of disruption for existing businesses?
1: People are increasingly unwilling to pay for stuff. We know this is, as content creators, right? We've kind of taught people that free is good. So I think ownership is a really big deal. Ownership of things, particularly high-ticket things, is going to change. The idea that you buy a, a one vehicle for you is already starting to fall apart in, in, in many urban environments. San Francisco, London, New York, I know, you know those car clubs, that kind of thing is mm-hmm. a really big deal. I think we'll see it going further than that as well.
3: So tell us how we can apply this to our individual lives. We've been speaking a lot about businesses, but how can we be better consumers, better job
1: seekers? So here's what it's not. It's not about concretely envisioning the future, as in there's one future. It's not about that. So we have to recognize the future is multiple, and we have to prepare for multiple futures. So job one, multiple futures. What's it going to be like if this, this, this happens? Secondly, what steps can I take today to move a bit closer to each of those?
3: A bit closer as opposed to as a opposed to closer, Yeah, this or... whole
1: one mighty leap and we're free, I think, is a really yeah. unhelpful metaphor. This... You know, the semiotics of change, the language of change, whether it's personal change or business change or political change, is heroic and macho. I just don't think that's how it ever works. Stuff often happens without anyone quite realizing, no, that it was happening or how it happened.
0: Both good things and bad things. Good
1: things and bad things. And and so the idea that you can just by sheer strength of will force yourself through is nonsense. Give yourself a chance by getting some small changes – And then some changes after that. If you're thinking about planning your retirement, as I'm beginning to think about now, there are a number of scenarios. And then there's not just one. So Mm -hmm. you need to think about several versions of that.
3: There's always the present. Don't just (laughs) plan for the future. Plan for the present. you know, one thing,
0: again, I'm really hung up on this disaster thing. But one thing that I've been to so many conferences… Where you get these successful entrepreneurs and they're telling us all, embrace risk. Mm. Well, it worked for you. You know, <laughs> you're the one out of 50 startups that survived. There's this thing called survivorship bias. Uh, totally. So, you know, if you only see the world through the eyes of the, of the, the exceptional people, like how to climb Everest. Well, first climb Everest. <laughs> and you, and you know, then, then no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, this is why
1: case studies are so great for teaching and so bad for learning. By that, I mean they're great for teaching people stuff you've already learned, but they're really bad for doing the science of how stuff works because case studies are written by the victors, they're written after the fact, and they're written on the basis that what the victor did was really, really important in determining that outcome. Those things are just not very helpful. So, I mean, let me give you... There's a great metaphor from um, the late Stephen Jay Gould, who's an evolutionary um, biologist, and he was always arguing with people who... um, were saying it's obvious it was inevitable that humanity would come at the top of the of the evolutionary pile and we'd be the apex creature of the planet obvious he says well just imagine you could rewind the tape of evolution just rewind it and fast forward it again and then rewind it and fast forward it again he says how many times would humanity actually come out on top not many Our success, like the success of individual business leaders or the success of companies or the success of products, is often contingent on a whole bunch of other stuff that we have no control over. So luck plays a role. Lady luck. God bless her. You get successful for reasons that no one ever imagined. Mm -hmm. And it's it's very rarely that you did something truly heroic. You just said,
3: lady luck, God bless her? Yeah. God bless you, Mark.
0: Thanks very much. Thank you. Mark Earls, thanks Thanks, a lot for joining us. Yes, thanks for joining us. This is fun. We could do this all day. Yeah. (laughs) So we're bad at predicting things. I mean that's that's Mark Earl's fundamental idea, and it certainly resonates with me working on on studying disasters and how these very smart people never know when they're getting into trouble.
3: Yeah. And another thing I think he's saying is be skeptical of experts, especially those who pretend they know what's coming next. Right.
0: So here's my answer. You know, in the Marine Corps they have this expression, embrace the suck. Like Admit that things are terrible, but you got to live with it, you got to deal with it, you got to move forward. Embrace the idea that we're not so good at predicting the future. Be more skeptical of your own expectations. If you're running a business, spend some time, as he says, laying out a range of possible futures. Instead of thinking, right. we're going to put all our money on one. Right, prepare for
3: multiple scenarios. Exactly. So that's one clear takeaway. I think another is, and he didn't state it. But I think it's very much in the spirit of what Mark was saying is be a little humble.
0: Yes. Well, humility. Especially if
3: you're in a leadership role.
0: You know, and that's true in so many places. So... Humility, understanding that we're just not that good at this, I think is useful across the board. And
3: what about his comment about being generally right, try to be generally right rather than specifically right?
0: Yeah, it's a little hard, I think, for a lot of people to see how that works in their lives. But I think it comes back to this idea that you're not going to pick the exact scenario of the future. So you plan for
3: different outcomes. But, but I think he's also saying, don't just you focus on one big idea or one thing. Yeah, yeah. Right? And also consider what would happen if you're buying a home. What would happen if you had to spend $20,000 repairing the roof? Plan for that before you buy the home. Right, That's right. Be, it, it probably won't happen, but prepare for things that might not happen or you don't think are going to happen.
0: And I, I think that's really good advice. If you're going on a camping trip, well, what happens if somebody sprains an ankle 12 miles on the road? Think that through before you head up the trail.
3: Another business and branding idea that he came up with, which is really intriguing, is the changing millennial consumer in that a lot of younger people, I think, have a different attitude towards owning things and sharing things than we do.
0: You know, I don't know. I'm so scared. I mean, you keep okay. hearing like, oh, millennials are so different. Millennials but, but, but the do this, millennials the ride, do that. But the ride-sharing thing is I think very everybody's, much like, yeah, I think yes, everybody's but it came that, out so. of young people. Because they don't mean, have any money. You know,
3: he, <laughs> perhaps, but I ride-share now. Right. And I ride-share way more than I, I would have done. That did not come from our generation, thank you very much. That came from younger people and then us older people adapting to that. But
0: not because they're so young and young people are so flexible. It was a necessity. No, if you I, don't have I, a lot I of think, money, you use a smart car.
3: I don't. Agree. I, uh, I think that I think that, that that there are some attitudinal generational changes in the same way that we as baby boomers had very different consuming habits, and we were marketed to in a very different way than our parents were. And as a result, they learn from us. I we learn from our kids. I What's we, wrong with
0: that? I think we overgeneralize this stuff, and most of these ideas about how different millennials are come from Generation X and baby boomers. Yeah, you we, can
3: overemphasize it, but I still think there are some differences. Sure,
0: there, But I mean, people are, but people. People behave differently at different ages in their lives. True. Um, and I, you don't want to just think you know, the, the ways that people behave when they're 25 are because they're just a completely new generation, or maybe it's just because they're 25. Well,
3: perhaps they are given more uh, attention because they're easier to sell to.
0: So my big takeaway is, like you say, it's humility. And I think in so many areas, in politics, in engineering, in running businesses, we never know as much as we think. We're never as smart as we think we are. And the people who screw up are never quite as dumb as we think they are. You know, we're all kind of muddling through. And when you recognize that, then maybe you can make better choices when you don't expect perfection and you spend a little bit of time forgiving yourself for the occasional mistake or knowing, you know what, we're not going to get everything right. We're going to make some mistakes. Let's plan so that those mistakes are survivable. I'm
3: planning for an ending right now. This is How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And and our producer is Miranda Schaefer. Music by Lou Stravinsky. We're produced by Davies Content, which makes digital audio for companies and nonprofits at DaviesContent.com.